Thank you, Eric, and thanks, Ben, for your leadership and worship this morning. And welcome, everyone. It's a joy to be together in the sanctuary. What a treat to actually see people for a year. It's been a case for me, anyway, of preaching to an empty room and really literally wondering if anyone is listening or cares. Uh, in some ways, very freeing, no negative feedback. But no feedback is not very fun at all. So uh, really a joy to be with you this morning here and online as we continue to slowly uh, regather physically. So I'm going to pray, and then we're looking this morning at the first fruit of the Spirit. Last week, we did an introduction of a series regarding the fruit of the Spirit. This morning, now, looking at fruit number one, and it is number one for a reason. Love is what we're talking about this morning. So let's pray together. Father, thank you that we have the privilege of gathering within these walls. We don't take that lightly. We're mindful that Brazil, India, many parts of Europe still, Canada, um, people are afraid of gathering. So it's been a privilege that we are able to be here. Now we pray, Father, that uh, you would speak to our hearts, and as we re-enter uh, life together in a more physical way in the days ahead. Would you imprint upon our hearts this invitation to love and may it draw us to you as the source, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. This is one of the hardest words, in my opinion, in the English language, this word love. By virtue of its overuse, its breadth of different definitions, and uh, its misuse. And because of that... Uh, it, it, it kind of has lost any sense of meaning and poignancy for many, many people, right? All kinds of songs about love, entire genres about love called rom-coms uh, that aren't really love at all, but uh, like a sentimentality that is a confusion, a mistake for love. But I want to talk for a minute about the difficulties related to this theme of love around both ambivalence and ignorance. And what I mean by ambivalence is this, we want, all of us in the room, want to love people well. Like, if anyone doesn't want to love people well, just stand up now. We all want to do that. But we also, in our most honest moments, know that we actually don't want to do that also. We, don't, we want to love people, but not really. Uh, this is really beautifully articulated by Dostoevsky, in his book, The Brothers Karamazov, and I pick up a conversation between two of the characters who are speaking, and one is saying to the other, I met this old man once. He was unquestionably intelligent. He spoke just as frankly as you and I, humorously, but with sorrowful humor, and this is what he said. And this is the old man now. He said, I love mankind, but I'm amazed at myself. The more I love mankind in general, the less I love people in particular. That is one of my favorite lines in all of literature. The more I love mankind in general, the less I love people in particular. Uh, uh, that is individually, separate people. In my dreams, I go so far as to think of passionately serving mankind, and it may be I'd really have gone to the cross for people if it were somehow suddenly necessary. Yet in reality, I'm incapable of living in the same room with anyone for even two days. I know this from experience. I can't tell you how many times, this is my own biography a little bit here, how many times I have said, I want to be more hospitable. I, and I picture myself in this romanticized version of myself, sitting in my front yard with a fire pit and uh, neighbors just feeling free like they can just drop in anytime. And there's 
a little bit of wine there and a fire and marshmallows and chocolate for the kids and laughter. And in reality, it never, ever will happen because at the end of the day, my battery's low and I don't want to talk to anybody. So I've got this romantic notion of love and then this real notion. And this is, for many of us, the challenge. We're ambivalent. We, yes, of course we want to love people. It's just that we don't really want to. And that's why it doesn't happen. Then the other thing that is a challenge for us is ignorance around love, particularly within evangelical uh, communities such as ours. Uh, we, you know, who are raised in Western Christianity have subtly or not so subtly been taught that the mature faith is defined by our capacity to both know and firmly believe and defend certain doctrines, right? You know, deity of Christ, check. Virgin birth, check. View, my view of atonement, whatever it is, check. And if, you know, if I believe the right things and I defend the right things, then I'm considered a wise man of some sort. But Jesus wants nothing to do with that. Jesus says that the defining characteristic of our spiritual maturity and the one thing that validates our faith, the one thing, Jesus said it this way. He says, by this, everyone will know you're my disciples. Not that you can defend your doctrines, not that you memorized Isaiah, not that you have a long, quiet time, not that you're in these pews every Sunday. Here's the one defining characteristic. Boom, love one another. If you don't do that, you got no credibility at all. And, and uh, this one man, I'm reading a book in, right now entitled The Sin of Certainty, and he quotes here, he's a, he's a the, uh, theology professor. He says, a faith that celebrates someone known for his radical agenda of loving one en one's enemies and turning the other cheek presently has a public image. That's like us. A public image, according to the majority of opinion polls, are that Christians are known most for these three things, judgment, judgmental, condescending, and nasty. Like we're called to love, and we're not even known as unloving, i.e. apathetic. We're known as judgmental, condescending, and nasty. Like that's almost the opposite of love. So we're ambivalent about love, and we're ignorant about how important it is. And hopefully in our few minutes together, we moved the needle to change that a little bit, right? By looking at a couple of things, uh, the validity of our testimony stems from our capacity to display real love, Christ's love for one another. And the question on the table this morning is, how does that happen? And what does that mean? And the answers to those questions are found in these three observations we look at together. Love flows from fullness, first of all. Love serves and love forgives. So yeah, I mean, if you remember nothing else this morning, Please do remember those three things and let's begin to apply them in our lives. Love flows from fullness. Love serves. Love forgives. And we begin with this, love flows from fullness. Eric read for us John 13, by this all men will know you're my disciples. You have love for one another. But uh, that passage from John 13 is very important to be considered in the larger context of John 13. And the larger context of John 13 is foot washing happens in John 13 right? Uh, so we'll get into that in a minute. Jesus, in John 13, washes the disciples' feet. Now, this is, I will say to you, um, a sign of abject humility on the part of Jesus, because Jesus, who had everything kind of 
he removes his robe, he puts a towel on, and literally he kneels down and he washes the feet of the disciples. The person who does this in a caste culture is, the low, is at the lowest caste. So if you're washing somebody's feet, you're at the bottom hierarchically. And Jesus does this, and then he turns around and he says, now you do that to one another, and he says, that's a beautiful symbol of love, right? So Jesus washes the disciples' feet, but before he washes their feet, we have to understand the context, what enabled him to do that thing. And here, this is what we unpack, John 13. I'm going to read just verses 1 through 3 so you see it here, okay? This is pretty significant stuff. One of my favorite passages, actually, John 13, 1 through 3. Before the Feast of the Passover, that's going to serve communion and, and wash feet, the Feast, feast of the Passover, uh, Jesus knew his hour had come that he's going to depart from this world. So what does that mean? He knew he was about to be executed, right? He knew he was about to be arrested, betrayed, um, uh, put, on, put on trial, falsely accused. The entire group that shouted Hosanna is going to, the preacher is going to be shouting crucify him. Uh, he's going to be mocked, beaten, spit upon, nailed to a cross, and God the Father is going to be separate from Christ the Son as he takes on the sin of the world. <clears throat> and Jesus, it says in John 13, he knows all that that night. He knows. He knows that this is the, going to be the worst side of his life. Within an hour, he's going to sweat drops of blood in the, in, the, in the garden as he prays. I don't want to do this, right? So he knew his hour had come. He knew who was going to betray him, Judas. But he also knew this. this is, and this is key. What does he know? He knew... Verse three, that God had given everything into his hands, so he knows his inheritance. He knew that he'd come from God, so he knows his origin. He knew he was returning to God, so he knows his destiny. He knows his origin, his destiny, and his inheritance. And then it says, because he knew those things, he, he was able then to get up from supper, lay aside his garments, take the towel, gird himself, kneel, Wash the feet. In other words, so important, love flows from fullness. Does that make sense? Like Jesus knew his origin, his, his destiny, his inheritance. And so because he was filled already with this kind of confidence, this existential confidence, he had the wherewithal to do what needed to be done. Now, here's how I ponder this. See if you follow this with me. Like on that night, I think a normal person under the stress of knowing what was about to happen, about to be betrayed, you know, arrested, unjustly accused, beat, mocked, death, like a normal person on that night would be like this with his closest friends. Hey, you guys, this is the worst night of my life. So for once in three years, could you guys put aside your egos and take care of me? Like, I really need you. How about tonight, just once, you wash my feet? Because, you know, this is stressful. Arrest, betrayal, death. <laughs> so how about you take care of me one time? Not Jesus. On the worst side of his life, he has the capacity still to serve. And, and in doing so, this one, which you see, very important, he, he shows that my capacity to love 
It comes from the fruit of abiding. In other words, I, I brought this intentionally this morning. If my cup is full and you're thirsty and it's not COVID time, then I can share my cup freely with you. And I can be like this. Sure, Nathan, here, get some water. And then give it back to me, right? And, and to anybody else. And I can, I, I can freely give because what? Somehow I have freely received. Does this make sense? I can give what I receive. But watch this. I can't give what I don't have. That's why when you fly on a plane, that during that time you're not listening, this is what everybody says, the people important. This is what they say. They say, hey, when the oxygen mask comes down, uh, what do they say? Like, put your own on first so that you have the capacity to care for those around you because you cannot give what you do not have. And so if my cup is empty, I can't serve. I can't. But if I, if I have a full cup, then I'm able to serve. And the good news for all of you in the room is this. You have the capacity to have a full cup. Why? Because in Christ, you are, what are we told? What are we told? You're complete in Christ. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. You have been given, here's your, here's your full cup. You've been given every spiritual blessing. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. You're, you're adopted as sons, which means your sonship or your, 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 your inheritance vis-a-vis God is more secure than a biological son. Like, you're secure, you're adopted, you're complete, you're filled, you're given. 2 Peter chapter 1, all things pertaining to life and godliness. Like, what do you need that you don't have? Your cup is filled. In fact, Jesus said in John 7, if you're thirsty, come to me. I won't fill your cup. I'll make you a river. <laughs> so you have not only enough to meet your own needs, but you have the capacity. I so want to do this. I just want to pour it all over you, but I'm not going to. It's just so tempting. You won't come back if I do this. So like, you're, are you thirsty? Wow. I won't just meet your needs. I'll give you the capacity to meet the needs of others. But it's all predicated on your cup being full. And the good news is this, your cup's full. So there's a, there's a paradigm in us <laughs> that is tempted to fill our cups with the wrong source. And our cup will never be full if we're looking to the wrong source to fill our cup. In other words, in Romans 3, we're told, or excuse me, Romans 8, uh, verse 3 through 9, we're told that, uh, you know, you have a sin nature and, a, and, a, and the Spirit of God in you, right? And then we're told in Romans 8, this sin nature does not delight in what God wants to give you and does not submit to the law of God. And then it says this in Romans 8. It says, indeed, it cannot, it's not even able, like that sin nature in you is not even able to want, let alone receive the things of God. And you have a sin nature, and I have a sin nature. So there's a piece of me that when my cup is empty, wants to self-medicate with stuff that's destructive. Does that make sense? It could be pornography, could be alcohol, could be drugs. And in its worst iterations at times, it could be things that look really holy too. It could be religion. It could be, it, it, it could be exercise. But whatever it is, it's like, I'm, I will fill my cup out from my own humanity, and it won't work, right? So, so we're trying to fill our cup, and Romans 8 says this. 
when you're trying to fill your cup that way, it it will never be satisfying. That's the flesh. And then, powerful, Romans 8 and 9. However, that is not you. You are not in the flesh. You are in the spirit. In other words, your most fundamental, truest identity is your life in Christ. So in Christ, there is a piece of you whose whose cup is always being filled with Christ. The question on the table is, will I continue to deepen and live out from my truest identity, or will I continue to choose to seek filling my cup with trinkets that will never satisfy? That's the real question on the table. And the way that we remind ourselves that we're complete in Christ, the way I remind myself that I'm complete in Christ is through the the spiritual discipline of meditation. So uh, over the course of uh, this COVID season, we've all found ways of coping. One of the things that's been most meaningful to me has been a little seven-minute period of meditation in the mornings where I meditate on my identity in Christ. And I do it this way. I go, uh, Christ above me, because I'm always receiving things from Christ, right? Uh, every, every perfect gift comes from above, James 1. So Christ above me, I receive. I receive the sunshine. I receive the rain. I receive the air I breathe. I wouldn't be here sharing with you were it not for the gifts from above. So Christ above me, I receive. Christ beneath me, I'm rooted. And I picture Ephesians 3, being rooted and grounded in love. I'm continually receiving the infinite love of God so that I know God is for me. Christ around me, and I think of you, Ken, right? And I think, I, think of, I think of people, and I look around the room, and I think of Carly, and I think, wow. I think of Rod. I think we're connected. The same Christ in all of us, no matter who we voted for, no matter our political persuasion, no matter the color of our skin, no matter what we think about some particular particularities related to doctrine, we're, we're woven together in Christ, Christ around me, I'm connected. And then finally, Christ within me, I'm called. And I just, in my seven minutes, I just remind myself over and over again, Christ above me, I'm receiving. Christ beneath me, I'm rooted. Christ around me, I'm connected. Christ within me, I'm called. And slowly, I begin to believe that I actually do have a full cup. And then if I have a full cup, then I have a capacity to do what love does. What does love do? Second point, love serves. So Jesus got up and, 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 and washed his disciples' feet. That is a symbol of service, right? And in a hierarchical culture, as I already said, uh, the, the lowest class does the foot washing. This was made powerfully visible as a symbol to me in India. It's been 27 years ago now when I was teaching there I spent two weeks teaching the book of Hebrews to a delightful group of students from India who went on to be church planters in various parts of India. And the last thing that we did as a student body was a foot washing ceremony. And I'll tell you what, we could do a foot washing ceremony here and we'd all hold our noses, I suppose, and do it, you know, but we'd do it, it'd be fine. It carried in India a particular poignancy because of the strong caste system that is present in India. And uh, one of the gentlemen who had come to Christ uh, had come to Christ from the upper caste, the kind of ruling priestly class up here. 
And the way that my friend had set this up, we're all in a circle, maybe 20 of us or so. And so uh, I'd get the bowl and then I'd go directly to the person next to me and I would kneel down and then take that person's shoes off, their sandals always in India, and then, and then wash their feet. And then, and then that person would take the bowl and go to the next and the next and the next. This guy who's from the upper class in the providence of God is seated next to a guy who's from the lowest class. And it falls to the upper classmen to wash the feet of someone from the lowest class. It's uh, in my history of teaching, it's the tensest moment that I've ever seen. The upper class guy who looked to be in his 70s, I don't know his age, he, at first he refused. I will not do it. It's not right. <laughs> and then uh, uh, the director of the school said, we're not leaving the room until you do it. And then a, an argument ensued. And then he finally, he did it, but, but he, he didn't want to actually kneel. <laughs> and so he barely got down and he did it in a very cursory way. And then he, then he looked at all of us and he said, never again. And he passed the water onto the next guy. Now, I don't share the story to condemn the guy. Hear me. I share the story to say that the spirit of that guy is in me. That's the Dostoevsky story, isn't it? That's the, oh yeah, love, man. It's all good until I actually have to do it. When I, have to, when I actually have to love, when I have to cross a social divide, when I who have plenty have to care for those who have none, when I who believe this about sexuality have to love somebody who believes that about sexuality, when I, when I who voted this way are called to sacrifice on behalf of someone who voted that way, no. It's in all of us, right? And so powerfully here, Jesus links love with foot washing. And then he, Jesus says, after washing the disciples' feet, he says, listen, the servant is not above the master. If I, the master, wash your feet, I'm telling you now, this is your calling. There is, there is no social divide that you cannot cross. There is no hierarchy where you will not be the one invited to kneel and serve. This is how God made you. This is how the faith gains credibility. And we've lost it, frankly, as evangelicals. We argue well. We can be snippy well. I can. Cynical well. But Jesus began this, this kind of season here of ravish love on this last night of his life with washing disciples' feet. Later, he'll heal the soldier's ear who comes to arrest Jesus and Peter it cuts off his ear and then he heals it. But what you see in Jesus over and over again is crossing divides and serving without regard, without regard to uh, class or belief system or any of that kind of stuff. Remember the woman caught in adultery? Like in the religious system of the day, she should be dead. Not with Jesus, he serves. The Samaritan woman, in the religious system of the day, she's a Samaritan, a woman, five failed marriages. She too would be an outcast. She's not an outcast with Jesus, the thief on the cross. 
Not an outcast for Jesus, the wealthy tax collector. Not an outcast for Jesus, the impoverished leper. Not an outcast for Jesus, the Pharisee who visits Jesus in the middle of the night. Not an outcast for Jesus. I mean, there is no category. All these people that I just mentioned, they would hate each other. Jesus loves all of them. And then he says, I'm loving you in spite of the social divide so that you can learn there is no divide you cannot cross. That's what love does. So after he washes the disciples' feet, he says, now it's your turn. Go do it. And I just want to say, we, it's so hard to get this right. Jesus, earlier that night, it's just as he's going into Jerusalem, he pulls the disciples aside. This is Matthew 20, and I'm paraphrasing, but he pulls the disciples aside in Matthew 20. He says, hey, listen, you guys, I want you to know, this is the week. We're going to go in, and this week, I'm going to be you know, betrayed, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be, I'm going to be executed. And I mean, when I read the story, I'm thinking that within the circle of disciples, there'd be some compassion. And instead, Peter's like this, yeah, yeah, interesting, whatever. Jesus, we got a really important question. Like, uh, you know, after you're executed, when you're in glory, who gets to sit at your right and your left? Because John and I, we've been talking, and that we'd love those seats, right? To your right and your left. And Jesus like this, did you not just hear me? I'm going to be executed. Oh, yeah, yeah, interesting, interesting. Come on, tell us here, we want this and this. Boy, can you not see your own humanity in that? I can, right? Like how easily compassion is stolen by the enemy. In, in, and in its place, like my lust for prominence and, and reputation and market share, blow it away, man, so that, so that, Service can define you. And I'll just say this, not to toot my horn, because I don't do this well, but to show you how, how little service can make big differences. I was speaking at a conference some years ago, and at the, on the last day, I said, hey, I just want to thank, I know there's some, some wait staff here. You're in the back, you're listening. I just want to thank you for your service. They've been serving us meals all week. I said, the food was great, but it was so fun to meet some of you and hear your stories, and da 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 And then I get a letter from one of the guests of the conference. He said, you know, I came to this conference with my wife just to humor her, but to be blunt, I'd given up on all Christianity and all Christian leaders. I thought you were all just a bunch of hypocrites. He said, when you, he said, the best thing I heard out of your mouth all week was your words of thanks to the wait staff. That gave everything else you said credibility. And I was like, man, one little word of affirmation can turn someone's faith? Yeah, yeah. So let's put on these glasses and begin to ask, how can we serve one another? Because serving is what love looks like, right? And there's the last thing, love forgives. It's really interesting. Jesus served Judas communion. I mean, I don't know if you know this, but when you, when you look at church history from the moment of Jesus till today, one of the great debates in church history has been who gets to receive communion? Who gets to receive communion? And, you know, there's, different, there's, there's you know, open communion and closed communion, and you got to be part of this denomination, or there's all kinds of things, right? Well, we're open here, and I mean wide open, because 
the responsibility for having a right heart with communion doesn't rest with me, the leader, it rests with you, right? So whatever you are, only if you're worse than Judas would you even be considered to not qualify. And Judas was not so good, right? So you're in. You're in. You can come to the table. You, everyone can come to the table. It's fine. And yet, uh, throughout the history of the church, we've erected the Lord's table as some kind of a wall. It's really important, though, that we see here when Jesus, knowing Judas' heart serves in communion, that was the beginning of this literal festival of forgiveness that would unfold in the next few days for, for, for Jesus to, to, to show us that love forgives. I mean, so he, he, he serves Jesus' communion, and then he prays for, for forgiveness uh, for those who are executing him, right? Like, as they're hurling insults at him, he prays, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Now watch this. With both with Judas and with them, before there's any repentance, any confession of sin, they're already forgiven. This is so important. You are not forgiven because you feel bad. You're not forgiven because you confess. You're not forgiven because you repent. 1 John 2 says this, Christ's work on the cross is the propitiation, or like, we'll put it this way, the payment for your sin, you're forgiven. Boom, it's done. Now, do you want to live in God's story? Do you want to enjoy fellowship? You want a clean heart and a guilty conscience? Then confess, then deal with your stuff, but you are forgiven. It's paid for, done. And then Jesus says this, in the manner in which you've been forgiven, now you go and forgive others. Does he really say that? Oh, we pray it all the time. I mean, if you pray the, what's called the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And what? Forgive us our trespasses. How? As we forgive those who trespass against us. Do you realize what you're praying right there? You're saying, God, I only want you to forgive me as much as I'm willing to forgive the person who rear-ended me and doesn't have insurance. Or as much as the person who betrayed me or the person who led me down. In other words, Jesus, please forgive me, but only as much as I forgive others. That's what he taught us to pray. There's this woman in Rwanda who shared her story, who embodied that principle so well. Her name was Monique. She was part of the uh, Tutsi tribe that were largely the victims of the genocide in Rwanda in the 90s. Some Hutu, some male Hutu tribe members offered to shelter her in exchange for all called the sexual favors. So uh, uh, different men would visit her, bring her a small amount of food and sexually abuse her. And this went on for some weeks. And then all the men decided as things were intensifying, they'd better kill her so that she wouldn't be a witness later. And so they, they all went and they, they massively beat her up and left her for dead, but she didn't die. And then you fast forward the tape, six years, and she was seeking out each one of those perpetrators. So a man is at home with his, with his wife. Here's a knock on the door. He opens the door and it's Monique who he had 
abused in the forest six years earlier. He thought she was dead. She says to him, I'm here for two reasons. Uh, First of all, she said, I've tested positive for AIDS. And uh, my husband has tested positive. And because you were with me, I just want you to know, and I think you should get tested as well. Second, she said, and this is more important, she said, I'm here to forgive you. She said, I've become a Christian, and in my faith, I've learned that Christ forgave me before I even knew I was a sinner. And that Christ is now commanding me to forgive those who've wronged me in the same way. So she said, it's very important to me. You don't have to say anything, but I want you to know, in Jesus' name, I forgive you. Now, listen, uh, we're re-engaging in this moment. Like, we're taking our masks off, both uh, literally, and I pray spiritually and socially as well. And embedded in that is a calling to move away from the paradigm of arguing and defending and, and toward the paradigm of loving by what? By serving and forgiving. Because what does Jesus say? By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. I'm gonna pray, and then as we worship, I'm gonna ask you to allow God to just speak to you regarding who it is that God is calling you to actively love in this, in this season ahead. It may be a neighbor with whom you have a broken relationship. It may be a friend. It may be a family member. But where is God calling you to take a step of love through service and forgiveness? Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for this really powerful passage that speaks in a way that's so contrarian to the domination and individualistic culture in which we live. We have a ways to go here, Jesus, but we ask that you'd shepherd us toward love in order that those driving by right now who really hate the church could see something here that testifies of hope. And we'll thank you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.